Harry's been around the crossing for a long time, and we kind of know each other, but not much, partly just because he's a man of few words and our paths hardly ever cross. The one place that we do see each other is out on the trail, but even then, we just kind of give the little head nod that guys give to each other to acknowledge that I know you, but I don't want to interrupt your workout or whatever you're listening to. But the other day, I was out on the trail, and uh, I saw Harry waiting for me ahead. At least it looked like he had something he wanted to talk about. And given that he's a man of few words, I thought, well, this is probably something fairly important. And as we visited there on the trail that day, Harry told me a story. It was just a couple weeks before that, that he had woke up one morning and didn't feel right. Like, in a sense, he knew that he didn't feel right in a significant way, not just in the every other kind of way you might wake up and not feel your best. So it led him to call a doctor, but he was in such good health that he didn't really have a doctor. So it took several phone calls to finally get to the right person who ended up scheduling an MRI. Here he does the MRI. A few days later, he gets called back and said, can you come in to discuss it? Never a good feeling. And so when he went into the doctor, at least the way Harry tells me the story, the way he remembered it, is one of the first things the doctor said is, Harry, you need to get your affairs in order. About 15 months from retirement and a plan about how his life was going to go, Harry, a guy in great health, was told by the doctor that there was something on that MRI that caused the doctor to say that whatever plans you have, it's not going to go like you expected. Life isn't going to turn out the way you wanted it to turn out. It was hard on him, as you might expect. But it wasn't just hard on him, I think. I mean, it just didn't leave him thinking about it at night. But ever since Harry shared that story with me and how he was trying to trust God in the middle of that, it's been on my mind. And I just have been thinking about the brevity of life and the fragility of life. Like you and I, we have plans. You, you graduated and you want to go to a, a, a grad program or maybe you are thinking you're going to get married or have kids or look forward to retirement or moving to a new city, whatever it is. We've all got these plans, but they get interrupted because life rarely goes the way we think it will. Life is shorter than we expect. Life is more fragile than most of us are willing to acknowledge. The verse that keeps coming to my mind since talking to him was James 4. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. Isn't that true? I mean, you don't even know what's going to happen in your life tomorrow, and yet we have all these plans, and we're overconfident in our plans. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Our, our life is a mist. Our life is that vapor out of your mouth on a cold day. You see it, and then it's gone. How are you going to spend your mess? What are you going to do with your life in the, in the years that God has given you? What are you going to do today? Because you don't know what tomorrow holds. And it's caused me to wrestle with those questions. And to come back and say that I want to spend the days God's given me in a way that I'll be pleased when I stand before Jesus someday and have to give an account for my life. Don't you want to spend your life majoring on major things in life instead of majoring on the minor things? 
And it isn't so easy in our superficial world to get caught up in minor things and let those consume us at the expense of the things that are really important. It's also made me think of how important what we do is when we gather here on Sunday morning. That, that coming to worship, coming to, to, to be in the scriptures together, to see one another, to serve one another, to reorient our life around what is true and what is important. And it's not just a worship service that, that you do that, but your small group, your men's and women's group that you're involved in. Let's spend our midst, our, our life, the few years we have, doing things that we will be pleased with when we stand before Jesus. And what we can do is follow Jesus. That's what we're talking about in the series through the Gospel of John, is just what does it look like to follow Jesus? And, and today and next week in chapters 3 and chapters 4 of the Gospel of John, we're going to see Jesus call people to follow him. We're going to see Jesus have conversations with two very different people, and yet both of them he has a heart for. Next week in John chapter 4, we'll begin to see Jesus talk with a woman who is a religious and ethnic outsider. And besides that, she's morally compromised. But today, in John chapter 3, we're going to see him talk to that woman's polar opposite. Today, we'll see him talk to a man who is the ultimate insider. He, he is so moral that he is a part of the Jewish religious ruling class. But what we're going to see in both conversations that Jesus has is that both the religious and the irreligious can be far from God. Both the religious and the irreligious can find grace in God. Both the religious and the irreligious can find their way back to God. Today, we're going to meet the ultimate insider in John chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. There's a lot you could say about what it meant to be a Pharisee, but for our purposes today, just know that they were very serious about following God's laws. And this Jewish ruling council that he's part of, well, it was called the Sanhedrin. It was made up of a small number of educated elite Jewish men who served as kind of the Jewish supreme court. So what John wants to know about Nicodemus is that he was very moral and very important. Verse 2. He came to Jesus at night and said. So before we even get to what Nicodemus says to Jesus, I just want us to think for a moment of why Nicodemus is coming to Jesus at night and why John points that out to us. Now in the Gospel of John, night is used as a metaphor to mean moral and spiritual darkness. And what we're going to see throughout this conversation is that Nicodemus is educated, he's smart, but he is spiritually blind. He, he, he's a great teacher, but he doesn't get the most basic spiritual truths. But we'll also see that, that, that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night because he didn't want to be seen talking to Jesus. Because to be frank, he was a bit embarrassed by the fact that he was talking to Jesus. He didn't want his buddies on the Sanhedrin, that Jewish ruling council, to know that he was interested in what Jesus had to say. I mean, think about it. And Nicodemus could have come to Jesus very easily during the day, right? It wasn't like Jesus was hard to find. He was out publicly doing his ministry, publicly teaching. So Nicodemus could have found him if he wanted to. I mean, sure, there were crowds around Jesus. But because Nicodemus was important, the crowds would have gladly made way for him. 
So the fact that Nicodemus chooses to come at night shows that the culture is always uh, pushing back on us, trying to keep us from following Jesus, trying to make it harder for us to follow Jesus. See, it doesn't really matter if you live in the first century like Nicodemus did or the 21st century like you and I did. Following Jesus can be difficult because it turns out that Jesus is not always popular with our friends. He's not always popular with our family or or the people we work with. No matter what century that you live in, no matter what part of the world you live in, there is this unseen cultural pressure that tries to conform us according to its image, that tries to shape our values in a way that makes it hard to follow Jesus. You see, it's, 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 it's difficult to follow Jesus if it really doesn't fit well with your friend group, with your family group. It's, it's always hard Think about what, 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 what it means to follow Jesus in this world. And think of the cost it is. I mean, here's the thing. Following Jesus is not something you can do if you're embarrassed of him. Following Jesus is not something to do if you want to listen to the voice of the culture. Because the reality is that you don't get the forgiveness of Jesus without repentance. You don't get the, the, the salvation Jesus offers without surrendering. You don't get the, the, the life of Jesus with, without uh, uh, being willing to die to yourself. Just in the Sunday mornings that we've had together this past year, the places we've been in the Bible, we've seen that following God always costs something. Right? I mean, when we're in the book of Daniel, what do we see? Well, following God caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego their life in the fiery furnace until at the last minute God stepped in to save them. It cost Esther her comfortable life, her privileged life as queen. Following God cost her that because he called her to risk it all for him. Or, or think of Jonah. What did it cost him to follow God? Well, it would have cost him his prejudices because God called Jonah to share his love with people that Jonah hated. So let me just ask you this morning, what is it costing you to follow Jesus? Like today, what's it costing you? Can you answer that in your head, your heart? What is it costing you today? Let's don't go by it too fast. And if you can't think of anything that costing Jesus is is costing you, you know, that following Jesus is costing you, then can I just in the most polite way that I know how to do, suggest that maybe you consider that the reason it's not costing you anything to follow Jesus is because you're not following him? I know that's hard to hear. But like I said, we don't get forgiveness without repentance, and we don't get salvation without surrender, and we don't get Jesus' life without dying to ourselves. Verse 2, let's find out what Nicodemus said to Jesus. He said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. So essentially, Nicodemus is saying, who are you? I mean, we see that God's with you in some way. You're able to do these signs. But is there more to you than that? And what Jesus is, or what Nicodemus is hoping that Jesus will do is explain himself and then defend himself. And then Nicodemus wants to sit back, be in control of the situation, and evaluate Jesus and see if he uh, kind of makes a persuasive case. But Jesus will have none of that. He turns the tables very quickly. Verse 3. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. 
So Jews like Nicodemus in the first century, they believed that the kingdom of God was coming at the end of the world. And they believed that all Jews would be entered into the kingdom of God, except those who were extraordinarily wicked. But Jesus counters that. And he says, no, no one enters the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And the shocking thing would have been to the people who heard Jesus say this is that, is that Jesus applied this to Nicodemus. He, replied, he applied this truth to a person as religious as Nicodemus. What he's telling Nicodemus is that you don't get more religious. Following Jesus or becoming a Christian is not about getting more religious because you couldn't be more religious than Nicodemus. And he's also telling us that, that, that we aren't in control of our uh, spiritual birth, of our relationship with God. Just like you don't control when you were physically born, so you don't control when you are spiritually born. That no one gives birth to themselves. No one gets into the kingdom of God apart from God's grace. No matter how religious you think you are. And then there's that little word, unless. Unless. When, when Jesus says, unless you're born again, what he's saying is that this is an expectation, a requirement that applies to everyone. That little word, unless, wipes out every other way that we can imagine getting to God. Unless you exercise, you will not be in shape. Unless you water your grass, it won't be green. Unless you put gas in your car, it will not run. Unless you have good pitching, you won't make the playoffs. And unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. Verse 4. How can someone be born when they're old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. It's clear that Nicodemus is not getting it, right? I mean, whatever Jesus is saying is going right by him. When I said that Nicodemus was spiritually blind, this is exactly what I meant. He's a smart guy. He's educated. He's a great teacher, but he doesn't even get the most basic spiritual truths. Verse 8. Jesus says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is, with every, so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now this word for wind and, and spirit in Greek is the same word. And so what Jesus is doing is using that word play to compare the wind with the work of God's Spirit. And he says, look, you don't see the wind. You can't tell where it's going. And yet, yet you know where it's been. You can see its effects. If I said, boy, there's a strong wind blowing through this auditorium this morning, you go, well, no, there's not. I go, well, how do you know you can't see it? And you go, well, there's a strong wind blowing. We would see the effects of it. We'd see people's hair blowing or papers being blown away or we would hear the sound of it. In the same way with the Holy Spirit, you cannot see him and yet you can see his effects. You can see where the Spirit has been. So the question we should ask ourselves this morning, is there any evidence that the wind of God's spirit has been blowing in our life? What's the equivalent, though, of the hair blowing, the papers rustling, and the sound we would hear from the wind? How do we know where the spirit's been? Well, Paul tells us in Galatians 5, there's more that you could say than this, but here's a good place to start. The fruit of the spirit, in other words, this is what the spirit does. Wherever it goes, this is what he does. The spirit produces love. And joy and peace and forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. This is the effect of where the Spirit has been. Do you see that growing in your life? Let's go back to our story in verse 9. 
How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? I mean, you can see what he's doing here. He's poking at Nicodemus a little bit. Like, you're the, you're the Reverend Dr. Holy Father. You're the guy with all the titles after his name, but you don't understand these basic spiritual truths? And you say you're Israel's teacher. Well, don't you know that even the Old Testament told stories about, about me? And Nicodemus is confused. And so Jesus tells him about one of those Old Testament stories. So John chapter 3, verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Now, what's this story about? Why is is Jesus telling this story to Nicodemus? Well, if you go back to Numbers 21, so back in the Old Testament, what you find is there's a story about Israelites wandering in the wilderness, and they're doing the thing that they do a lot, the thing that we do way too much of, and that is complaining. They're complaining against God. Their life is too hard. They've been treated unfairly. They're impatient with what God is doing in their life. Well, God responds in Numbers 21, verse 6, this way. He responds to their complaining by this. The Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. See, we may think grumbling and complaining are okay, not that big of a deal, not ideal, but nonetheless, it's not that big of a deal. God sees it completely differently. Complaining and grumbling against him is one of the more serious sins that we could commit. So serious that God sent venomous snakes to bite and kill the Israelites as judgment for their sin. The people, when you go back in Numbers, the people, the people confess their sins. They see what they've done wrong. They confess their sins. And they ask Moses to pray for them. And Moses prays for them. And here's how God responds to Moses' prayer. Verse 8. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Well, this is starting to sound familiar. This is the story that Jesus told Nicodemus. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. See, it's good that all they had to do was look at the snake to live because that's all they could do. They were sick and dying. They could not walk to the snake. They could not touch the snake. They could not bow down to the snake. But one thing they could all do is they could look at the snake and God would rescue them. See, why is Jesus telling Nicodemus and us this story? It's because he wants us to realize that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. As long as we look to ourselves, we will never be saved from our sin. But what we must do is look to Jesus. There's a, a video I want to show you. Now, now, now I could tell you the story this, this preacher is going to tell you, but he says it with this great Scottish accent, so you'll like it much better than me telling the story. And, and he's telling about the thief who uh, uh, died on the cross right next to Jesus, okay? So, so let's watch. Think about the thief on the cross. And what an immense, I can't can't wait to find that fellow one day to ask him, how did that shake out for you? Because you 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 were cussing the guy out with your friend. You'd never been in a Bible study. You'd never got baptized. You didn't know a thing about church membership. And, and yet, and yet you made it. You made it. How did you make it? That's what the angel must have said, you know, like, what are you doing here? Well, I don't know. What what do you mean you don't know? Well, because I don't know. 
Well, you know, we, uh, did you, <laughs> excuse me, let me get my supervisor. They go get the supervisor ranger. So we have just a few questions for you. First of all, are you are you are you are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? <laughs> the guy said, "I never heard of it in my life." And and what about? Uh, let's just go to the doctrine of scripture immediately. This guy's just staring. And eventually, in frustration, he says, "On on what basis are you here?" And he said, "The man on the middle cross said, I can come.' <laughs> now, now that's the." That is the only answer. That is the only answer. Your obedience and your religiosity and your faithfulness will not save you. Only Jesus can save. But Nicodemus, he wasn't ready to follow Jesus at this point. Now, good thing for him that God did not give up on him. And this isn't the last time we see Nicodemus in the Gospel of John. The next time we see him, things have changed. Jesus' popularity has grown, so much so that the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin that Nicodemus was part of, they were jealous of Jesus, and they were talking among themselves about how they could put Jesus down. They were trying to figure out, how do we stop Jesus and his ministry? So we pick that up in John chapter 7, verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier, and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? Now, now, you see what's happening here is that Nicodemus is beginning to defend Jesus in public. Not just in public, he, he's defending Jesus among the Sanhedrin, among his friends, among his peers, among those people who he craved their respect. He is, he is starting to risk the very things he was unwilling to risk when he came to Jesus at night. He's risking his reputation, his career, his finances, all that. And, and look how they respond to Nicodemus defending Jesus. Verse 52, they replied, are you from Galilee? Are you from Galilee? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. See, now we see why Nicodemus had gone to Jesus at night, why he was afraid to defend Jesus publicly, because the, the Sanhedrin turns on Nicodemus. When he defends Jesus, they all go, are you from Galilee? Remember when they said about Jesus, uh, is he from Nazareth? Nothing comes, good comes out of Nazareth. And, and Nazareth is in Galilee, and Galilee is the countryside. So when they say to him, are, are you from Galilee? Well, what they're saying, are you backwards, Nicodemus? Are you uneducated? Did you graduate from KU? You know, they, 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 they are making a threat. Imagine waking up this morning and realize you graduated from KU. What a bummer. Uh, they, 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 they are making a threat to Nicodemus. They are telling him, you keep quiet. Because if Nicodemus is going to follow Jesus, it's going to cost him something. Because following Jesus always costs us something. It's going to cost him something. Now, there's one more time in the Gospel of John that we find uh, Nicodemus being mentioned. Now we're toward the very end. Jesus has just been crucified, the lowest moment of his life. The, the one they were all worshiping and following is now hanging shamefully naked, crucified. Here's week, John 19. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. In other words, Nicodemus is not the only one who is keeping it all quiet because he's scared. It's not just Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus, but it's you and me too. With Pilate's permission, he came, that's Joseph, came and took the body away. 
He was accompanied by Nicodemus there as our guy. Look how he's identified. The man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. So they take Jesus' body and they wrap it up and they bury it according to all the Jewish burial customs. But why does it tell us that, that he, he was the guy who was afraid to come to Jesus? He went to him at night? Because what he wants us to see is that this skeptic is now becoming a follower of Jesus. The one who, who didn't want to pay the cost, the one who was too scared to publicly come to Jesus during the day is now willing to risk everything, everything to follow Jesus. What he wants us to see is that what started at night has now fully come into the light. See, it took a long time for Nicodemus to come to be a follower of Jesus. Maybe you'd been back there in Nicodemus' first encounter and you were aware that he'd come at night because he was embarrassed. And you looked at him and saw him leave without following Jesus and you and I, we would have probably written him off. Well, we were hopeful for him, but it turned out that he was unwilling. He showed some interest, but not enough. We might have written him off. We probably wouldn't have written him. We probably would have. But you know who didn't write Nicodemus off? You know who didn't stop pursuing him? You know who didn't stop chasing him down? God. Because God doesn't give up on people. It took Nicodemus a long time. It was a process to come to faith. Some people come to faith quickly, and it just kind of comes a little bit, at least appears to some of us, it comes natural for them. I know it doesn't, but it seems like that. And they just immediately turn and start following Jesus the first time they hear. But for some of us, it's a process to be a Jesus follower. There's more than one way to be born again. When I was, uh, what seemed like a lifetime ago, I was on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, right out of college. That's what my wife and I did. And uh, one year we had came back here to Mizzou and they said, hey, because you're new, here's the areas of campus we want you to work on. And one of the places they wanted me to work to go have a ministry was the Fidel Fraternity House. <laughs> now I was like, you've got to be kidding me because it was like the party palace. There was a reason they were sending me there and they didn't want to go there, right? And I thought, oh, well, okay. I mean, the Fidel's had just a few years earlier uh, when I was in college, burned down their house with a bottle rocket war. And so, you know, you're like, okay, I'll just say I did it. I'll, I'll go do something and then I can write it off and go do something else more profitable. So I knock on the door, you know, metaphorically, ask the pledge trainer, can I start a, a Bible study with your pledge class? And to my great surprise, he said, sure, you can ask him. So I got to stand in front of the pledge class and say, hey, you guys want to come to a Bible study that I'm going to lead? And they said, we could do it during your study hall hours. And, you know, like 10, 12 guys were like, sure, I'd come. So I think they were just coming to the Bible study to get a study hall. But I didn't care. We had the Bible open and we were talking. And there was a guy, a bunch of cool stories out of there. But there was one guy named Tyler that um, he was super sharp. The kind of guy that you just knew was going places. And he was interested in Jesus, but not too interested. Maybe a little bit like Nicodemus. And after he got out of that pledge year, he, he would see me around and we'd talk and he was always very kind. He was the kind of guy that became president of the house, a big man on campus, got all kinds of awards, but he didn't want to be too close to me. But he graduated, to be honest. I said, oh, well, Tyler's one of those people that came close, but didn't become a Jesus follower. I gave up on him. You know who didn't? God. A few years ago, Tyler called me out of the blue and said, hey, remember me, of course? Yeah, of course I do. He said, can I come by your office and talk to you sometime? 
So he came by and he shared the rest of his story. When he got out of school, he got a great job, but that job put him in some positions that he felt were starting to compromise his integrity. And even though he wasn't a Christ follower, he was still convicted by it. And that set forth another part of the process that led him and his wife to become followers of Jesus, to become Christians. And today they are leaders in a fantastic church in in, uh, the state of Missouri. Now, here's the thing. I admit that I gave up on Tyler. I'm too quick to write people off. I'm too quick to think, well, they won't believe. Maybe you think of yourself as the person that nobody thinks will believe. Like you're struggling, you're here more of desperation than anything. You're just grasping onto something, trying to have hope in something beyond yourself. You know who hasn't given up on you? God doesn't give up on you. And if God doesn't give up on people, then you and I, we can't give up on people. Because you never know the process God is going to take someone through until he grabs their heart and they become followers of Jesus. He did it for Nicodemus. He does it for you and me. He does it for those around us. He does it for those who love. So let's keep trusting God with ourselves and with everyone in our life. Let's don't give up on people that God doesn't give up on. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you did not give up on us, but that you loved us to the point of dying for us and you call us to come and be your followers. God, give us the grace to not give up on your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.